0: Okay, having completed last time our study of chapter 31, uh, which dealt with the state of man after after death and of the resurrection of the dead, we're now moving on to chapter 32, which talks about the last judgment. Now, chapter 31 talked about what happens to individuals when they die. And we saw in paragraph 1 that their bodies go to the grave and their souls either go to heaven or to hell. And then we saw that on the last day, there is a general resurrection. Uh, The dead are reunited with their resurrected bodies. The living are transformed and they all appear before God um, once again in the last judgment. And that brings us to chapter 32. So, we talked about the nature of the resurrection bodies in paragraph 2 and in paragraph 3. Well, now that everybody's resurrected and everybody's in the body that they're going to live in forever, which they all get at the second coming of Christ, what's next? Well, chapter 32 is what's next. So, what chapter 32 deals with, as I said, is the last judgment. And so, we need to understand that at the end of the age, there's a general resurrection at the second coming of Christ. And then all of these resurrected righteous and wicked people appear before Christ at the throne of judgment. Now, notice, if you will, paragraph 1, the certainty of the day of judgment. And the first thing that is pointed out is the one who is the judge. The one who's sitting in judgment. Notice, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. To whom? All power and judgment is given of the Father. So when the day of judgment comes, and we come before the judge, who's the judge going to be? Answer, it's going to be Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who's going to judge you and me and everybody else in the whole world. Okay, Well, who is he going to judge? The next phrase tells us, In which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ. So, As most of you are aware, before God created the world and Adam and Eve, he had created an untold number of angels. Um, We don't know how many. Millions and millions of angels. And some of these angels, under the leadership of Satan, rebelled against God. And they fell. Which means that they became alienated from God they became depraved and corrupted, and they came under the judgment of God. Now, some of the angels didn't fall. They didn't follow Satan. And it appears that a third of the angels fell with Satan, and two-thirds of them did not. And that's based on a statement in Revelation chapter 12. And um, Satan... Um, was created by God originally as a good angel. There were no bad angels, but Satan began to become envious of God and thought he would make himself equal with God and rebel against God. And uh, of course, any time you try to rebel against God, you always lose and Satan lost. And um, so on the last day, the angels are going to be judged too. It isn't going to just be us. And then, of course, likewise, all persons that have lived on the earth. So anyone who's lived from Adam and Eve right up until the time of the second coming of Christ, they'll all be resurrected, they'll all appear, and they'll all be judged. We're talking billions and billions and billions of people. There's seven billion people alive on the earth right now. And, And, of course, that population keeps turning over. Someone dies every three seconds, is that right? Or is it three people a second? Yeah, and one person every three seconds dies, and one person probably every two seconds is born because the population keeps growing or whatever the numbers are. I don't know, but you know we're talking about a turnover of seven billion people um, every three seconds. We're talking about a lot. Huh? What's that? Yeah, somebody dies, right? Okay. Well, right, right, right. Okay. I never was a genius at math. Yeah. Go ahead. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, and probably 150,000 born a day. Probably a little more. To replace them, yeah, there would have to be 160,000 born a day if the population yeah. is going to keep growing. Okay, good, thanks. There's the math. He's smarter than I am. I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. Anyway, um, uh, the bottom line is, is the earth has been around for 6,000 years. Uh, there's been a lot of people. They're all going to appear. All right. Now notice <clears throat> the process of judgment. It says in paragraph one, they will give account of their thoughts, words, and deeds. That's what God's going to judge. You know, you think a lot of stuff you never say. And then you say a lot of things you never do. But God's going to judge even the thoughts. Were they good or were they evil? And uh, that's what's so foolish about even an external righteousness. The Pharisees thought, well, we never did anything wrong. But Jesus says, if you thought anything wrong, it's sin. And so uh, it makes us all sinners and all dependent upon someone else to save us. So we're going to give account of our thoughts, words, and deeds and receive according to what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, We're saved by faith in Christ. Saved by faith in Christ plus nothing. But we're judged by our works. And people go, how does that work? Isn't God going to be evaluating our faith, whether we had saving faith or not? Because that's how we're saved. We're not saved by works. He's going to judge us by our works. Nobody's going to be saved. Well, the answer to that question is, is the faith that saves is a faith that also produces a transformed life and transformed pattern of behavior. And there will be a very distinctive difference between people who are saved and how they lived and people who are unsaved and how they lived. And the way people live very, very clearly declares as to whether they had saving faith in Jesus Christ or not. So it's not your works that save you or your works that damn you. It's whether you had faith or not that saves or damns you, but that faith is revealed by the works that you do. So we're going to get into that. So the certainty of the Day of Judgment is the one sitting in judgment is Christ. The persons being judged are the apostate angels and all the persons who lived upon the earth. The process of judgment is that we will give account of our conduct and thought, word, and deed, and then we will receive our just due based on that evaluation. Okay? The next paragraph deals with the purpose of the day of judgment. The purpose of the day of judgment. Now it says here... It, first of all, it describes the purpose. It says, The end of God's appointing this day is for. Now, the word end means the goal or the purpose. Okay? So, the goal or the purpose of God's appointing this day of judgment is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy, number one, in the eternal salvation of the elect. And, number two, for the manifestation of the glory of his justice and the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So, what is the purpose of the day of judgment? The purpose described is the manifestation of the glory of God's mercy as he saves his elect and the manifestation of the glory of God's justice as he eternally damns the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Now, how is he going to accomplish this purpose? Well, the purpose is accomplished in the disposition of the righteous and the disposition of the wicked. Notice, for then, that is on this day of judgment, shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting reward in the presence of the Lord. But, And here's the second group, the wicked who know not God and obey, not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be cast into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So the Bible makes it very clear that um, the righteous are going to go to heaven, the wicked are going to go to hell. Heaven is eternal conscious bliss. Hell is eternal conscious torment. So the disposition of the righteous is that they will receive everlasting life. They will receive joy, glory, and reward. And they will enjoy the presence of the Lord. The disposition of the wicked. Their characteristics are they know not God. They obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their condition is going to be one of everlasting torment. And everlasting destruction from God's presence and power. Now when it says everlasting destruction, notice what the destruction is with reference to. It's not with reference to their persons. It's was reference to being destroyed from God's presence and his power. So they are not going to enjoy the presence of God or the power of his redemption. Uh, They are going to suffer eternal destruction with reference to that. A lot of people believe that when the wicked go to hell, they're going to be annihilated and they'll pass out of existence and that'll be the end of that. Uh, The Bible absolutely and categorically denies that teaching. The Bible makes it very clear that they will be in eternal conscious torment uh, without end forever and ever and ever. And that's the awful end that uh, people just recoil at at the horror of it, and, well, we should. And it should move us, then, to seek salvation and to seek the salvation of others because um, eternal torment in hell uh, that is never-ending and without any remedy or relief is something that is awful to contemplate and something that we need to uh, live in fear of that would drive us to Christ and something that would motivate us to share the Gospels with others. And then we look at the flip side of that and we see the incredible, endless, wonder, glory of heaven and the delight and the joy and the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the peace um, that will be in that condition forever and ever. And the wonder of that, uh, the unspeakable um, glory of that is something that we also can't comprehend. And so, you couldn't have a greater negative motivation and positive motivation than hell and heaven to move people to faith in Christ. And uh, those are the incentives that are offered, and those are the incentives that we need to act upon. And that leads us then to the third paragraph, which deals with the timing of the Day of Judgment. Now, everybody wants to know, when is the end coming? And the answer is it's coming but we don't know when. And so something can be certain as to its accomplishment and yet uncertain as to the day it's going to occur. Now, when a woman's pregnant, guess what? She's going to have a baby. It's certain she's going to have a baby. But do we know the exact day and the hour? We don't. We know the general time frame, about 9 months, right? But some women are a month early, and some are a month late. Um, My Angela was born a month late. And so, something would be certain to occur, and yet we not know the time it would occur. And uh, Stokes boys, they were a little early, weren't they? What, two months, huh? So, anyway, uh, we know it's going to happen, we just don't know for sure when. Okay, so the timing of the Day of Judgment. First of all, it is certain there will be a day of judgment. Notice paragraph 3. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both, and then here's the effect, to deter all men from sin, because if you know you're going to have to answer for your sins on the day of judgment, um, you're motivated to not commit them, and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, See, as Christians, we're not afraid of the Day of Judgment. Okay, For us, the Day of Judgment is a day of joy. And we're going to talk about that as we go along. But it's not like when you get to the Day of Judgment and you're a Christian that God's going to parade all your sins on a big screen TV for the whole world to see. It isn't going to happen. All those sins are under the blood of Christ. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And the only thing that will be spoken of, and we're going to see this from the word of God, is the good works you have done as a result of faith. And so for us, it's a time of vindication from our enemies. It's a time of reward for our good works. It's a time of joy, entering into the joy of our Lord. For the Christians, the day of judgment is the best day of their lives. But it's not that way for the ungodly. So... The timing of the day of judgment is certain there will be a day of judgment. The effect of this knowledge deters people from sin. The effect of this knowledge is a source of consolation to the believer. Secondly, notice it says, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded, there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for a greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day unknown to men. So that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. And of course, that phrase in italics is taken right out of Revelation chapter 22. And so this uncertainty keeps us from a carnal security. Ah, oh, Jesus is never coming back. I don't have to worry. He could come back. And you would not want to be unprepared. The certainty keeps us watchful that our Lord could return at any time. And so we need to be prepared for that. This uncertainty keeps us longing. Lord, I don't know when you're coming back, but I sure hope you hurry up. <laughs> you ever felt that way? Lord, take me now. I want out of here. And so um, that's the effect of it. So what we have here then is the certainty of the Day of Judgment, the purpose of the Day of Judgment, and the timing of the Day of Judgment. Now, as you can see from looking at these two chapters that deal with eschatology, that is, eschatos is the Greek word for last, and ology is the study of, the study of the last things, eschatology, you're going to hear me using that term you already have eschatology, the study of last things. Um, It deals with personal eschatology, what happens to individual people when they die, what happens to individual people when Jesus comes back, they're resurrected, they get new bodies. And then corporate eschatology, what happens to people in general? Well, there's going to be a day of judgment. And uh, you'll notice our confession doesn't go into the details of premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism. Uh, We're going to venture into those details ourselves. Um, But um, what the confession clearly does do is it lays a solid foundation for all millennialism Um, in that it posits, and rightly so, uh, a single event where there uh, there is a second coming of Christ, the general resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, the day of judgment and the disposition of the righteous and the wicked into heaven and hell, and that's it. And so all millennialism has all of these events occurring all at once, all on one day, and they're not stretched out, you know, uh, part of them before a thousand years and part of them after a thousand years, and that type of thing. So the popular dispensational eschatology of premillennialism that's promoted in in books like uh, Tim LaHaye's uh, is simply unbiblical. And uh, we'll see that as we go along. So, lots of opportunity for questions. I don't propose to have all the answers, but I have some, and I'll share with you what I know. All right, are there any questions? I bet you've got a thousand based on what we just went through. Okay, well, you'll get to ask them as we go through, uh, phrase by phrase, and prove uh, these statements from the Bible, but I wanted to give you an overview today of where we're going and what we're going to be dealing with, and then uh, we will, um, uh, when we conclude this chapter, we'll go on and, and, and um, begin to deal with um, uh, the four major eschatological passages in the Scripture. See, everybody thinks that the major eschatological passages in the Scripture are Revelation and Daniel. They're not. The major eschatological passages in the scripture are Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, and 2 Peter chapter 3. Those are the four major eschatological passages in the scripture. And you know why? Because they're not metaphorical. They're literal. There's not a lot of symbolism or allegorical or metaphorical language in them. Uh, there's not symbolism in them, they just straightforward say it like it is. So anytime you're, you're approaching any biblical subject, you want to start with the literal passages and then go to the metaphorical passages or the parables or whatever. You don't start with the allegorical passages and go to the literal ones. Okay? Mike. Um I know how like a lot of people like want to believe in like the pre-tribulation rapture and stuff, um, you know, but it's kinda of funny how and Jesus says in Matthew twenty four, um, twenty-nine and thirty it says, Immediately after the tribulation, um, the sun shall be dark and the moon shall not give light and verse thirty says, um, and, then, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man appear in heaven, and then all the tribes are open one, and then shall see a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven grave. So um, it's just kind of interesting to see how, like, the will believe in that pre-tribulation rapture when, you know, she said to that it's going to happen after um, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a while back I mentioned the issue of the last trump, and that will be interesting to see that, too. When does the last trump occur? It occurs on the Day of Judgment. It doesn't occur seven years before then. Yeah. 1 Peter three, Second Peter 3 makes it very clear. All right. Well, um, this is going to be exciting. Bring your questions. I can't promise I'll answer them all, but I'll do my best and we will uh, hopefully have a clearer view of this stuff when we get all done, okay? But we're going to start out, we're just going to plow right through the confession, get that done, and then we'll go into some of these other passages. It's going to be exciting. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that salvation has a goal. It has an end. It has a conclusion. It has a glorious outcome. And Lord, we're moving towards that day, and Lord, we're excited and grateful uh, that we have an optimistic, blessed future to look forward to. Thank you, Father, for saving us from the wrath to come. We've gotten a glimpse of that wrath already, and Father, we shall get another glimpse as we go through this next chapter again. Father, I pray that you would cause us to live our lives with sobriety and seriousness, knowing that life and death are not things to be fooled around with. The consequences are too enormous, Father, to be wrong on this issue. And so we ask, Lord, that you would guide us into the truth and help us, Father, to not only rejoice in the goodness you have for us, but also to warn others to flee from the wrath to come so that they too might repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as their Savior and find eternal life in heaven with you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.